Hi, I'm Elia Einhorn. Welcome to the TalkHouse podcast. Today I'm joined by... Nick Dawson, Editor-in-Chief of TalkHouse Film. This is the best of spring edition. Yeah, I'm excited to show off our spring range. There's some really lovely little numbers and... Uh, the podcasts are in bloom. <laughs> yeah, we're showcasing the best podcast moments from the past couple of months, which feature luminaries from the worlds of film, TV, and music. Uh, I'll be your co-host for the first half, the film and TV side of things. For this one, we're going to feature clips from... Chris Gethert with Todd Berry. Azazel Jacobs and Shannon Plum. Jim Hemphill with Leah Thompson. And Paul Shear and Ken Marina. Nick, to start us off today, a conversation that we recorded as part of our series of live podcasts at the flagship Sono store in Soho. This was Chris Gethard in conversation with Todd Barry on the occasion of Todd's new book about being a working comedian. Exactly. And, and one of the overarching topics was sort of the little details of the life of a rogue comic. And a really important one, of course, is clothing. This was a very important detail, which they expounded upon at length and hilariously. You might say it was quite the thread. <laughs> Kill me. That sounds like it'd be like a real loose dress code at that award show. I would have to imagine, but I own my own tuxedo, so if they want to go there. Do you really? Yeah. I Let's talk one. about that. Purchased one for the wedding. Really? I'm like, well, here's the thing that's not, I have a reputation for being like this underground guy, but I have a very bizarre and severe addiction to J. Crew clothing. Do you really? I have a J. Crew suit. Yeah, I have a J. Crew suit, and I was like, I want to get married in a J. Crew tux. So I just went and bought a tux instead of renting. Did you? <laughs> what if we spent this whole time talking about J. Crew? I'm, I'm actually, we got another good five minutes on this because I'm curious. So you were, yeah. you were just like, in your mind, like, all right, I like J. Crew. They make tuxes. This <laughs> yeah. makes this decision easier. Yeah. Probably reasonably priced, too. Yeah, it was. It was pretty reasonably priced. They, they tailored it quickly. I'll tell you, here's what happened with me. <laughs> I once worked a job, and you know, there's these wardrobe people, and this lady was fitting me for stuff, and she said, you know, J. Crew clothes sit really well on you. And I said, okay, a thing to remember. And I once saw a guy in a T-shirt that I liked so much that I actually approached a human being and said, where did you get that T-shirt? I never, I never talk to people. I'm very shy. Right. Don't love interacting with strangers. And he said, J. Crew, and those two things added up in my mind. Stop by the store. They have these personal shoppers. Next thing I know, all I wear is J. Crew for like six years. See, I find stuff like J. Crew. Like I like to wear stuff from J. Crew, but I don't want to look like I bought everything at J. Crew. Yeah. So I want to be but like. But I don't like this T-shirt. Yeah, J. Crew. That's pretty. Uh, I don't think you could have bought that anywhere. Yeah. Right. You could have bought that at Uniqlo. I uh -huh. just want to get some other clothing companies in there because <laughs> yeah. it looks like it'll be set up that we. This J. could Crew. be an old navy. That could be. Yeah. A, I think it is an old name. This is J. Crew. And so, frankly, I'm offended that you. Why, why don't you now? Like, now I'm going to lose my J. Crew sponsorship here. Why don't you get? I got to think that that's just like five dollars more than it would be at Old Navy. Oh, it's definitely. I'm definitely spending more on clothes than I should be because of this weird brand um, loyalty. I always think like rich people. You can tell someone rich by someone's rich by. It's always interesting to see what kind of t-shirts they wear. Like he's like oppressed. Yeah. Like you can see a rich person like that's sort of shiny or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, so You bought, so have you worn the tuxedo more than once? I've worn the tuxedo three times, which makes me feel like it's starting to get worth it. Yeah. It's starting to become worth it, right? Now, is it one of those, is it a bow tie? Because I like the latest thing that I've seen in the past few years where it looks like a black suit. Yeah, no, it's a bow tie. Really? Yeah, I went classic, but it's not black. It's a very deep, it's a midnight blue. That was my way to keep it... Um, you know, really try to shake it up and be you a non-conformist. Did, by doing a color that 
people probably thought was black anyway. <laughs> Do you think there's any world in which anyone who tuned into this, tastemakers like the Talk House, uh-huh. you and I, these comedians, yeah. Do you think there's any world in which anyone tuned in thinking there would be this much talk about J. Crew clothing? I don't know. My guess is people are furious. I <laughs> feel like this is almost antithetical well, to what the talk house represents at its core. We are talking. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I think that's what it's all Are we supposed to be talking about music or I think we're supposed to be talking about something cooler than J. Crew. But don't you think it's kind of fun that we're talking about? I feel I, like you do think it's fun. I love it. There's nothing I love more than um throwing a curveball, you know? I like not talking about, not knowing what we're going to talk about to begin with. Otherwise, I don't, you know, I don't be like, so tell me about your process. Like, yeah, who, who cares? We could talk about that. We, we could talk. I do care, actually. I was just being, I enjoy being those edgy. conversations. But right. at the end of the day, the process is always like, for comedian, right? At the end of the day, for no matter what corner of the world you come from, it's like you just fall on your face and eat shit right. so much. And then you figure out how to not do that eventually. When you're writing, do you write with J. Crew clothes on? <laughs> Oh, I mean, if I'm wearing clothes, they are J. Crew. <laughs> what? Um... It's a fact of my life at this point. I only own like if there ever was a scandal where it came out that like J. Crew was super racist or like exploiting people, oh I'd have to throw literally every piece of clothing. Now, I that's own. a good. That's a good question because would you throw them out or would you? Would it be like I can't donate these because I'm donating racist? Clothes. Am I now donating like blood diamond clothes? Right. Great question. I would, Probably donate them. I hope this is something you'll think about when you're trying to sleep tonight. Yeah. Lord knows I've become anxious over less. <laughs> so let's go from one big question to another. Totally, Nick. Here we're going from the, the moralistic question to the astronomical. Indeed, this is an astronomical and from an astronomical conversation between Azazel Jacobs and Shannon Plum, which were recorded as they kind of huddled up on a hotel bed in the Lower East Side. Mark and I were there. That's our lead engineer and co-producer, Mark Yoshizumi. Indeed. And um, again, it's one of those moments where we kind of looked at each other and we're like, mm-hmm, this is definitely staying in. And it not only did it stay in, of course, but it's one of my favorite moments. And so it's in this one. Should we roll it? Let's roll it. I got, I got, can I, can I, um, I'm going to ask you something. Yeah, please. <laughs> this, um, so today I saw on Instagram, I, I'm connected to the IS or whatever it is, the um, International Space Station. And this guy, the guy who's been out there a year in space just came back to Earth. And they had to show him how to walk again because he can't, he's, his body isn't used to gravity. So he was walking like a a one-year-old. And I was thinking, you know, maybe that's why babies can't walk yet is because they really come from outer space. Wow. (laughs) See, I was thinking that the opposite, that maybe they told him who our president was and he (laughs) lost the ability. No, but isn't it? Don't you think that's a possibility? That... That babies came from outer space, or all of us? Like we, like we all, yes. you know, like somewhere, somewhere. I think that's proven. We don't have grav. There, there's no gravity for yeah. a baby, right? Well, that's true. I mean, that that's the. Or that's because he's in the womb. Well, is there gravity inside the belly? You know, you would know this more than I, better than I. I it's, guess I wouldn't, though. Yeah, I I don't know, but I like this idea because I know that one of the things that. Um, I got to study with Stan Brakhage and his mm. his main 
goal, at least according to how I felt, one of his main goals was to see again the way that he was as a baby before, or as a kid before he knew, we were told, oh, the sky is blue and the grass is green. What, do you, what, what was that like before we had this? And we can just kind of look up and go, oh yeah, the sky is blue today, the sky is gray. What, if you take that away, what do we see? Who are we and what, what, what is this world? And that's what I think of when you say that, like yeah. that, that feeling of just like getting back to that place of, um, yeah, like of, of otherworldly. Yeah. Just discarding like all that you've learned about the world, yeah? You kind of skipped out on the gravity baby thing. <laughs> All right, let's go back to that. You know, um, I mean, well, I just don't know. Does that wind up on Rotten Tomatoes? Is there? Did the astronaut say anything about the love? I mean, that's what's most important. Like, I want to wind the up on tomatoes. Yeah, the tomatoes. <laughs> what did he say about the tomatoes? No, he didn't no. say nothing. I don't know if he knew how to talk yet. He has to relearn how to talk too. Did wow. you know that? No. No. I'm gonna. I'm gonna take a look. But there sounds like a story here. Yeah, I, I think mean, cause, could. That could be, that's a good story. Yeah. A full grown person that has to start over again. Okay, yeah, I think they do. And now from one good story to another. This is, of course, Leah Thompson in conversation with Jim Hemphill. Now, Nick, as I was listening to the first draft edit of this conversation, the talk took a turn that I was not expecting. Yeah, they're discussing that situation where you're working with a hero or somebody that you've seen on screen from the time that you were very young and kind of the weirdness of that. And then Jim just takes it in a in a different direction to, to what we were expecting as he references when he first saw Leah on screen. That's right. He didn't just see Leah. He saw a lot of Leah. He also saw a lot of her co-star, a young Tom Cruise. Indeed. And we hear a lot of detail about that right now. I do get you know, a little bit of starstruck sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. the fans of Back to the Future, whatever, they're like, oh right. my God, that just lasts for like four and a half minutes and then it's over. Yeah. I mean, well, it's sort of an interesting thing, you know, uh, Scorsese talks about this rule that if, it, if if there's somebody who you work with who you saw in a movie before you turned 21, mm-hmm. there's something different, you know, you do have to get over that starstruck thing. Like he had it when he worked with Paul Newman on Color of Money and, you know, right. you didn't usually have it with other actors, but it was like Paul Newman. It was like, okay, I saw this guy when I was 14 and right. the silver chalice or whatever the hell it was. And um, yeah, I mean, I had that kind of experience with you a little bit, you know, I mean, look, my, this, the, the first memory I have of seeing you on screen is watching you get fingered in a car by Tom Cruise. <laughs> So that's sort of a strange, uh, uh, you know. Terrifying. <laughs> I, I saw. Um, I, I saw. Was that what was happening in that scene? I didn't know. I, well, I, I think thought, that's your imagination. Is, am I remembering it wrong? That's yeah, what I thought. Yeah. He, I'm pretty sure that's what he was doing to you. And now I don't know. Maybe I'm remembering. I mean, admittedly, I saw it sort of through, you know, through closed fingers because my I saw that movie with my grandmother, and she kept putting her hand over my eyes. So, so uh, maybe maybe I filled it. Maybe my imagination made it bigger than it was. But I it have seemed, Distinction of being naked with Tom Cruise, yeah. except for we were wearing white socks. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And that's well, and that's Which they sort had of to famous... digitally kind of remove at that time when they couldn't. They removed the socks. No, they had to reframe it, which was a big deal uh-huh. in film at that right. time. I guess. Yeah, to... they had to do it op- with an optical printer or something. Yeah, they, they the... had to. It was expensive to get the white socks out. Well, interesting, because it made everybody laugh, which was would have been great. 
Yeah. Well, the, now, well, and so it's interesting because, yeah, you had a nude scene in that movie with Tom Cruise. Isn't that the movie where he sort of famously, if you freeze it at just the right moment, you can see Tom Cruise's penis too, yes. I think? Yeah. It's a, like, so. like a big deal. And, and no one talks about me, but they talk about Tom Cruise's <laughs> penis. Uh, which which is oh brings me to another pro, you know problem because like you know in love scenes guys are always like I'm sorry if it happens and I'm sorry mm-hmm, if it doesn't happen mm-hmm. like it's either way so I don't think it happened <laughs> so Tom Cruise is probably a little embarrassed about that little peak of his penis I'm not sure it was cold in that room <laughs> I've never looked at it but mm-hmm. I've heard about it mm-hmm. but um, he was a gentleman and a, a awesome guy that scene was really interesting to me because he. There were two scenes in that movie where I was supposed to take my shirt off. And I didn't want to do the movie because I didn't want to take my shirt off. And they somehow convinced me to. And I literally had to take my shirt off in the audition, which was really weird and creepy. Mm -hmm. And I tried to make them really embarrassed about it. But, uh, yeah, the director said, Michael Chapman says, I don't want to be in the room for that. And I was like, get in the room. Like, if I have to take (laughs) off my top, you have to be in here, too. He didn't want to be in the room for shooting or for the audition? For the audition. Uh He was, like, mortified. He was a kind of, you know, uh, like, East Coast, like, Dude, yeah, you know, he's the guy who shot Taxi Driver and Raging Bull. Yeah, but well, so why? Who was it that wanted you to do that? that I think the studio wanted to see a if I would do it and b if I had nice boobs. Uh I I get it. Mm -hmm. You know, if I was in the same position, I'd probably ask for the same thing. But um, I didn't. So I got there, and there were these two scenes. That scene where I'm in the car and getting fingered, apparently. (laughs) Um, (laughs) At that scene, I was supposed to take my top off, and then there was the whole love scene. And Tom Cruise was really sweet. He fought really hard for me not to take my top off in that scene. And then he said when we did that other scene that we were, you know, the whole key about these love scenes, you know, at the time there was always, a girl was always taking her top off in every movie at that point. And, um, you know, they don't do it so much anymore. They just do it on HBO. Right. But, um Tom was really smart about it. He was like, you know, we got to make this a scene about something. And it's actually a really somber scene. And he said, if she has to take off her clothes, I'll take off my clothes, which was really sweet. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, he didn't have to. Equally, I did not have to take off my clothes to record this podcast. Neither did you. And yet we, we both did it. I kept my white socks on. They will be digitally removed. <laughs> okay. And now moving on from wearing no clothes to wearing all of the hats. That's right. Coming up, we have a clip from the Paul Shear Ken Marino episode in which they're discussing the myriad roles they each have in the business. Right. These guys are both writers, directors, performers, producers, and they do like a, stif- a wide range of TV shows and movies. So they don't have a clear identity, and that's something they really dig into. But then, as ever with our podcasts, it goes somewhere surprising. And wonderful. You, I want to go back to one thing that you said because I identify with this, and I would love to hear what you think. Like, because you, you, you've worked in, you've written movies, you've directed, you've directed a movie, you've directed series, you've been in series, you've done network, you've done cable, you've done this acclaimed, you know, show that people, you know, party over. You've done every facet of acclaimed. What was it acclaimed? Uh, uh, I was a party over. Uh, a party party down. down. Sorry, yeah, party down. Why? Yeah, uh, like I think oh, that's. Thank I mean, you. Don't you think that's like one of the most like. In the pantheon of like great sitcoms, it's up there. I feel like I th- I think that there's a it's I think there is a a, a a small group of people who really cherish that show as as do yeah. I. It's a, um, that's where you and I met. Yeah. No, is it? Yeah, I remember that. Like we may have been around each other, but I feel like that was the first time I remember connecting with you on that set. 
Really? I, I think so. I mean, that's been a while. I mean, that's a while ago, I feel like. That's crazy I, I, to me. I yeah. thought we knew each other before then, but maybe you're right. I feel, I, I feel like that was the time I remember going like, oh, I really like this guy, Ken. He's really funny. I'm very nice and um, yeah. I'm extremely funny. But Thank I mean, so ob <laughs> obviously, <yeah. laughs> but, uh, and obviously children's too, but I'm just saying, but there was something about party over here is I think always spoken Stop of. Stop saying party oh, over here. Why do you want to say party over Sorry. I don't know. Party, party over down. there? Yeah. <laughs> I did a show called party over here. That's why. Oh, uh, party down. You Sorry. were great in that. Party That's, over here. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, but, <laughs> but no, party down. Like, I feel like it's always mentioned that way so what i'm saying to you is to get back to this it is i think tough when you're known not just as an actor or not just as a director not just as a writer and you know like what do you want to do you know you you worked you know recently you were on you know marry me it's a big network show you know and, and, and at the same time you're doing very cool uh and not to say that wasn't cool i'm just saying but you're doing you're all over the board does it do you find that to be difficult and like to pitch yourself as what you are yes because what i really want to do is i want to dance well and that's the thing i know about you and i'm glad that we are here to finally yeah. talk the two things i wanted to talk about was <laughs> one i wanted to talk about the murder case that right. i feel like you've been getting a bad rap right. in all the papers i believe that's, i believe I, I your story there. i haven't been to canada in years and 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 the fact that this fake media is pulling yeah. out these yeah. facts i am uh, sickened by it but I want to talk about that. I want to talk about dance and uh, <laughs> my love of dance. Um, to me, watching you dance <laughs> is seeing, uh, and the only way I can describe it is um, it's like, like a, a rose bloom or a flower bloom. It's like a nature documentary. It's like watching a feather in the wind. I and I'm amazed that Alvin Ailey does he play a large Alvin part? Alvin Ailey was quoted yes. saying, mm -hmm. "Watching." Uh, my first recital was a, a was a revelation. See, that's amazing. And that's he Alvin actually and that's did Alvin the, Ailey. That's not me. Uh, and and that was an Alvin Ailey, I believe. And I I I don't have it in front of me, but does a a yearly performance of a thing called Revelation based on mm -hmm. Party Over There? Party Over There. <laughs> Nick, thank you for joining me for the Party Over Here on the Talkhouse Podcast. Best of Spring 2017. And to keep this party going, I'm going to pass things over to my music counterpart. Hey, I'm Amy Rose Spiegel. I'm Talkhouse Music's Editor-in-Chief. And additionally with us today, we have... I'm Sophie Kemp. I'm a writer. And I just started working on the editorial side of things here at Talkhouse. Sophie, Amy Rose, thank you so much for joining me today. We're going to be playing clips from some of our favorite episodes from the last few months. First off, we have a great clip from a conversation between Talib Kali and Patterson Hood of Drive-By Truckers. Then we have a clip of the conversation between Tarika Larson of Prince Rama and Mike I Took a Pill in Ibiza Posner. From there, we're going to head to McNally Jackson, where we had a great live talk between Cozy Fanny Tootie of Throbbing Gristle and Lenny Kay of Patty Smith Group. And finally, an unreleased clip from the conversation between teenage fan clubs Norman Blake and Chicago fingerstyle whiz kid Riley Walker. But before that, a quick roundup of what we've been up to. First of all, thank you so much to all our listeners who wrote in for the podcast survey. We really appreciate the love. And thank you, too, for everyone who came and hung out with us at Northside Festival, where we hosted some great podcasts with Rough Trade. First of those was Jalen and William Basinski, who are, I think, best friends, as you'll hear in the forthcoming podcast. It was a cuddle fest. We recorded a fantastic talk between Juliana Barwick and Martin Reb of Suicide. And finally, we had a great talk between Jen Wasner of Y Oak and Flock of Dimes with Jenna Hunter, who is in Lower Dens. 
also to look forward to, we will be back at Pitchfork for our third year straight. In the past, we've had artists like Kamazi Washington speaking with Thundercat, Brian Wilson, and Carly Rae Jepsen. We've had Porch's Aaron Main in conversation with TalkHouse's new astrologer, Shamir. Right. So every month now we have Shamir writing Shamiroscopes with his mom on TalkHouse.com. And that's in addition to great stuff like Mitski and Owen Pallet reviewing records and a bunch of new franchises and columns that you can go check out at the site. And of course, our series of live podcast recordings at the flagship Sonos store continues unabated. This is the series that brought you Kathleen Hanna in conversation with Meredith Graves, Prince Paul in conversation with the Flaming Lips, Wayne Coyne, and most recently, TalkHouse contributor Chris Gethard with Todd Barry. Yeah, those guys had a lot to say about J. Crew. They love J. Crew. But today, we've got some really special clips from the past spring, and I'm going to go to Sophie to let her introduce the first. The first clip that we're going to share today is between Talib Kweli and Patterson Hood of Drive-By Truckers. The background to this clip is Patterson Hood, frequent TalkHouse contributor, contacted us and said, I feel like rock and roll music has been socially and politically neutered. Everything important is happening in hip-hop right now, and I would love to speak with an MC who's using their platform for social and political betterment, who, of course... Talib Kweli is kind of the one in that way. And you'll hear that in this clip where he gives this really intersectional point of view about the differences between, well, the differences and the similarities between race, class, and gender-based privilege, where those things come together and where they differ. Yeah, and the way that Kweli sort of presents this discourse is in a really, really cool and accessible way where he's not afraid to break down all of these issues for his listeners. This part of the conversation comes just after Hood is acknowledging the institutionalized white supremacy in America and talking about how he wants to distance himself from what he considers to be, quote, his demographic, white, rural, southern males who look like, quote, that asshole Jeff Sessions and who elected Trump. And Quali really gives a roadmap for anybody who's looking to have an open and honest conversation about their position in the world and how to come to that in a politically proactive way. And lucky for us, we get to listen in. So let's roll it. I think the conversations around privilege are hard for for many reasons, but mostly because of lack of education. Sure. America has never been honest with our history of racism. And so people are approaching conversations about race thinking that it's, it's something that, you know, that just started yesterday. You know, people don't understand yeah. the history behind the word nigger or the history behind the word cracker or the history behind the Confederate flag or, or, or why we say states' rights or why, why the Civil War happened. Or people don't really understand these histories. Yeah. And so when you talk about privilege, in particular, like with white privilege, it's hard to tell a poor, from what my experience, and, you know, you, have, you probably could tell me better than I would know, but from my experience, when I have these conversations, because I'm on a line and I, I get harassed and attacked by a lot of racists and a lot of white people who don't realize that they're racist, you know, there's people who maybe live around black people, have children with black people, love Kobe Bryant, love Kanye West, you know what I'm saying? Like, but but still have right. these racist, racist tendencies. And um, and so I'll tell them, well, oh, you you're exhibiting this level of privilege. And they'll say, Well, you know, my father, my parents are broke. Like, I I maybe I didn't grow up with parents. Maybe I didn't, you know, I didn't have it good. And I bet think people don't understand that when I when people say you have white privilege, that doesn't mean you have a get out of strife free card. That doesn't mean that no bad yeah. things will happen to you. It's just uh, uh, th the stats weigh heavily in your favor. There's conversation you don't have to have. And 
And so for me, I try to approach the conversation with privilege by first acknowledging mine so that people get more comfortable. So if I'm telling a white dude, like, listen, you're exhibiting privilege right now, I'll say, listen, I have American privilege. I'm born with a passport. I know if I go to any country in the world and I get in trouble, I can go to the American embassy and show my passport and I'll, I'll have a better chance of being okay than a native of that, of that land. You know what I'm saying? Like, I have two arms, two legs. I'm able-bodied. I'm, I'm not a gay man, so I'm straight. Right. So that's a privilege. I, I'm, a, I'm a man. I, I, don't have, I don't go through, even as a black man, I get more privilege as a man than, than women get in a lot of ways. And if I can get people to see that I can acknowledge my privileges, that I think helps the conversation. It helps somebody say, okay, well now there's a level of privilege I don't have. I, I just don't have the skin privilege. You know, so a white dude does have right. that. Now I am a celebrity, so I've earned a celebrity privilege, but it's like that celebrity privilege, my earned celebrity privilege is less than a, a white dude's earned celebrity privilege. Now, you know, because I because I grew up in in Brooklyn, I grew up in Park Slope, Brooklyn as a black man, I have a higher class privilege than maybe a white dude that grew up in the Appalachian Mountains. You know what I'm saying? But but it, 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 if you get people, I think, opening up to figuring out where their privilege lies, I think that can help. A very powerful conversation, a very powerful clip. And for anyone who's interested, we have a list of organizations that Talib Kweli supports and recommends over at the website. Next up, we have Tarika Larson of Prince Rama and Mike Posner talking about truth and art theory. And things get a little bit postmodern. Yeah, this is a really great conversation between the two of them. As Amy Rose just said, things get pretty philosophical, a little order of the symbolic, a little post-structuralism. After all, this is a conversation between a pop theorist and a pop star poet. Let's roll it. Hell yeah. Well, you use this word truth a lot, this capital T truth word. But in your book of poetry, you have a line, the words have never been friends of the truth. Yes, you know, uh, so Alan Watts goes on, uh, will, or, or used to, he passed away now, but he used to go on a riff a lot about how words are symbols of truth and numbers are the same thing. So if I say the word book, it doesn't actually mean the thing that I have in my hand. It's a symbol for that thing. And the same is true of, of money, right? Money is not wealth. Money is a symbol of wealth. Um, or, or Ram Dass has a nice quote that I like. He says, all your words are just fingers pointing at the moon. They are not the moon. Right, so we're using we're using the poetry, we're using the art, we're using the song as a means to describe something, uh, describe something ineffable. And some people can get that. You know, the better you are at your art, the closer you can get to that thing that you're trying to des- to describe. So, what is that thing? That's the you know that's the golden question. We've got some differing ideas about what to do with the role of art in your life from Cozy Fanny Tootie of Throbbing Gristle and Lenny Kay of Patti Smith Group. Here, Cozy talks about what it is to live your art. And in this case, that means stripping. Cozy Fanny Tootie, of course, an industrial music pioneer, also performance artist, who decided that she didn't want to just use other people's images in her art. She wanted to participate. She wanted to live it. That led in part to her stripping and incorporating that into her artwork, 
one of her favorite songs happens to be a song that Lenny Kay knows well. When I'd started stripping by then, so I had quite a collection of 12-inch singles and things that I used to dance to, that I used to pick, you know, Donna Summer and stuff like that. So, And we sort of did throbbing gristle versions of um, disco music <laughs> and Martin Denny. I, I must admit you brought a smile to my face when I discovered somewhere in the book that you enjoyed dancing to Because the Night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was... Yeah. Can you tell me what was going through your mind when that was happening? <laughs> I just think it was my... I think I wrote and it. It was the one time when I danced to that record that that was my, that was my dance because I just adored that single. And um, so, yeah, when I, I, I got a big enough floor space to throw myself about... I dance to that. <laughs> Sometimes oh. forget to take my top off. I used to get into it so much, I forgot to take my top off. Yeah. And it, then it didn't work as we intended. <laughs> oh, well, they wanted more. The crowd wanted more of that conversation. And if you want more great stories from Cozy Fanny Tootie, definitely pick up her book, Art, Sex, Music, out now. Thanks again to McNally Jackson for hosting that event. Now, We may not have given quite enough floor space to Norman Blake and Riley Walker. There were a few pieces of tape that got cut that were very funny, but we just didn't have room for. Elia, here we're hearing them talk about recovering from tour and how shell-shocking that can be. This is actually an unreleased moment from that talk, and we'll have more of those little sound bites updated to our YouTube channel, so make sure to check that out. Should we do it? Yeah, let's hear it. Did you get that post-tour blues thing? Oh my God, yeah. The first couple of weeks when I got home, home from a tour, it really always always hits me. Me and, my, me and my friends call it the reality scaries. All right, that's good. That's a good way to put it, yeah. that's. A, <laughs> I, I, I had this, uh, this, this idea that what I'm going to try and do from now on is that uh, when I come home, I'm going to set up a kind of little pretend rider. And for people that don't know what a rider is, it's the food and alcohol that we get in our dressing room before we play a show. But um, I was thinking of setting up a little pretend rider in the kitchen. First day I got back, right, full rider. And then every day I'll just take a few things away from it. So I'll wean myself off the, uh, you know, the, 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 the tour. <laughs> and by the, end of oh, like, yeah. Yeah, by the end of a week, I'll, there'll be nothing left and I'll have to sort of, okay, I better cook something now. That's, that's, yeah, you'll just, have a sh- you'll just have a shit jar of olives and like a couple pieces of cheese. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah, totally. A little like, bowl of hummus or whatever, hummus and, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, crudity, <laughs> you know. That's all for this season's best of episode of the TalkHouse podcast. Our lead engineer and co-producer is Mark Yoshizumi. Theme music by the band Iced Inc. Thank you to everyone who rates and reviews us on iTunes and Stitcher. Every time you do, it helps someone else find the podcast. And an angel gets their wings. Hit us up on Twitter at TalkHouse. We're also on Facebook. On Instagram. And just to play us out, we have an extra special treat from Ken and Paul. Thanks for listening. It was Uh, wonderful. (laughs) Can we put our clothes back on? Yeah, I think so. And uh, we'll just go out with uh, you dancing. So take it away, Ken. You can only see what I'm watching here. It is unbelievable. Wow. God damn. Even if you don't like dancing, you're going to love this. Wow. 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 Plie. Plie. Really? Shit. All right. I stuck the ending there.